Please be seated. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. Because it is good and it is right and it is the best. So Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you would say here today. And we will give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to welcome those of you who are watching online and also in the community center. Good to have you with us. This month marks an anniversary for me. 22 years ago, last Sunday, I preached my first sermon as a pastor. Well, sort of. Uh, you see, I, I wasn't quite a pastor yet, and uh, the pastor search committee of the church that I was interviewing at uh, had selected me as their new associate, but the congregation didn't know anything about me. And so as part of the interview process, in order to get the job, I had to preach this sermon in front of the congregation. Well, it seemed like the worship service that day was taking forever, but finally my moment came. Stepped up to the pulpit, put my notes on the, on the, uh, you know, on the pulpit there, and uh, started to preach. Well, it was hot on that day, and they had these big fans up front and blowing air throughout the congregation, and <laughs> you're with me, so uh, <laughs> I was coming right to my first major point. I happened to turn my body in some way, and the wind from one of these fans picked up my notes and blew them all over the first three rows. I mean, like page one went left, page two went right, page three went down, page four went out into the third row. I mean, like that. Well, it got really quiet in there, and I, I didn't know what to say because my manuscript was all over the first three rows. And then those voices started going off in my head. You know, you're bombing, you're failing, you can't do this. Run, run away. <laughs> Ever had thoughts like that? Well, uh, I uh, happen to be particularly gifted at digging myself out of a mess, and I uh, have had a few opportunities to develop that skill. So <laughs> I uh, managed to say something intuitively that kind of lightened everyone up, and then I stepped down to pick up my manuscript. But before I could get down there, several people had already jumped up and uh, they were scrambled around picking up pages from underneath people's feet and off somebody's lap, you know, and they, and they got it all put together nicely. So by the time I got down from the pulpit, they handed this manuscript to me. I, I think I saw one guy counting the pages to see how long the sermon was going to be, but, you know, <laughs> it was really cool. So I thanked everyone, uh, preached without any sort of problem, and, and then they voted me in as their new associate. But that experience was huge for me because that could have been a really awkward situation, right? Long, awkward pause, the committee in my head having a bigger conversation, uh, maybe a rejection letter and perhaps a career change. But what meant the most to me in those moments was that someone was paying attention to me, knew what was hurting me in the moment didn't just sit around and wait to see what I was going to do or tell me they'd pray for me from their seat as they watched me kind of go down and see, <laughs> find, a, you know, find the manuscript. But they actually got up and did something to help me. The Bible calls that compassion. And this story about Jesus feeding the 5,000 shows us that that is what Jesus is all about, compassion. Now, the context of the passage that uh, we just read is that King Herod has executed John the Baptist, who happens to be Jesus' cousin. 
And John's disciples have told Jesus uh, that this has happened. So he's, gotten, he's loading up in a boat to go to a quiet place, perhaps to grieve uh, over the execution of his cousin John. But as Jesus lands this boat, there's a crowd there waiting for him. And though he went with one agenda in mind, verse 14 tells us that when Jesus looked at the crowds, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. You know, whenever we read about Jesus in the Bible, we find over and over and over again that he is moved by compassion for people and for the things that hurt the most. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, this is not just some sort of human emotional sentiment or platitude, you know, like, I care for you. But uh, it, the word in the Greek uh, that describes the kind of compassion that Jesus felt for these people means from the internal organs. It's from the deepest part of the human body. The point is that the kind of compassion Jesus has for us is gut-wrenching, tear your heart open with pain and compassion for the things that hurt people the most. Now, uh, I know as I'm saying that's, that, uh, some of you are going, all right, I, I got it. Like, I heard that two weeks ago. But there are a lot of you who weren't here two weeks ago. <laughs> and more to the point, whenever we talk about Jesus, we can't help but run headlong into his unconditional love and compassion for us. See, God is not temperamental or hard to please. He doesn't just change his mind or suddenly feel differently for, about us. God has a single stance, an unmoving, unyielding, unmovable stance towards us. He loves us. He loves us. Nothing can change that. He loves us. Nothing that we have ever done or will ever do can change that. He loves us. You can't discourage him. You can't send him screaming off into the night. He loves you. He knows we're not perfect, so he's covered our imperfection with his perfection by giving his life for us on the cross so that when we give our faith to him, our loyalty to Jesus, he rescues us. We can't earn it, and we can't lose it. It's a gift we don't deserve. That's good news. The problem is that there's this myth floating around these days that tells us that uh, once we say yes to Jesus Christ as Lord, then, then we ought to live, or at least we, we, we should try to live, as these morally and spiritually perfect people. Like, uh, life with Jesus should be the success story of moral and spiritual perfection, right? But you know the problem with that. We're not perfect. No one of us is perfect. So why do we live like this myth is true? Like we have to be these spiritually perfect people, and if we don't, then we feel like failures. There are no perfect people this side of heaven. There are only people who mess up, slip up, and let other people down. We are broken, and the Bible calls that a sin nature. If Jesus came just to pay the price for everything that we have done wrong in our past, and now expects us to be these totally perfect people, well, then that isn't good news. That's bad news for all of us. The truth is that the battle with lust, greed, anger, envy, or whatever still goes on inside of us, even once we've said yes to Jesus. And when we get really honest, we have to admit that we are all sort of a bunch of paradoxes. You know, I am. I believe and I doubt. I forgive 
and I hold grudges. I trust, and I'm afraid. I want to be honest, but I can stretch the truth from time to time. The good news means that Jesus uh, still loves us, even when we make a mess of our lives, even when we make a mess of the situations that we are in. Because when Jesus sees us, what he sees is that our sin is something alien to us, something that doesn't belong to us, something that has chained itself to us and mastered us in the moment. When uh, what Jesus sees is he sees right through the mess of our lives to the person God created us to be. And he sees our sin as something he wants to set us free from, not something he wants to punish us for. So let me ask you this morning, what are you hiding from Jesus that, that maybe he's asking you to uncover and to share with him today? What are you ashamed of that Jesus can wipe away? What hurts you? Would you take these things out and would you give them to Jesus that his compassion for you and his love could set you free? So Jesus is out expressing all his compassion for all these people. He's healing people. He's, you know, he's, he's uh, praying for people. He's, he's doing all these things. And one of the huge surprises of this text is that the disciples aren't anywhere out there. I mean, uh, uh, when we read a couple of the other Gospels, Mark and Luke, who also tell the same story, they tell us that the disciples have just returned from their first ministry expedition. And it's been this amazing time of ministry. They've been healing people, they've been casting out demons, teaching people uh, about Jesus. So you would think that the disciples would have been out there with Jesus. You'd think that um, they'd be praying for people, or they'd be healing people, or at least they'd be showing some compassion in some way, but apparently not. Apparently, the disciples are sitting under a tree somewhere complaining about how late it's getting. Apparently, they never really do anything about the crowd's needs or what hurts them. And at some point, they simply have had enough. So they circle around Jesus and they tell Jesus, you need to send these people away. Now, the crazy thing is that his unconditional love and compassion is what most attracted people to Jesus. That's why Jesus was so popular. That's why he was so popular with the poor and with the people who lived on the moral margins of life, prostitutes and tax collectors, because they were so attracted to his compassion and his unconditional love. And it's those people who were probably a majority of the crowd on that day. So why did the disciples send them away? Why is it so hard to live uh, and care for people unconditionally, to be compassionate people? Well, um, last week as I was praying and preparing for this uh, sermon, uh, I was working in our office and, uh, at home and there was a, the doorbell rang and it was a solicitor, someone telling me that the molding on my windows was outdated and that I needed to get it replaced. Well, I, I wasn't interested, but he looked hot and so I offered him a couple of bottles of water for his journey and off he went and I went back to my study to work on the sermon and the doorbell rang again. This time it was a young woman, she was selling books, happened to work for the, the same book company that my wife worked for when she was in college, so my wife invited her in for something to eat, uh, but the young woman didn't take my wife up on the food and we didn't take her up on the books. <laughs> so I went back to working on uh, my sermon and doorbell rang again. <laughs> Somebody selling magazines, no thank you. 
By the time the fourth guy showed up to tell me my lawn was patchy and my, you know, my trees had moss and mold in them, well, I was done. <laughs> I didn't want to talk to him or to anybody, right? I, I, and I know, you know, we don't have to listen to someone's whole spiel and we don't have to buy stuff from them, but I could care less. I didn't care about that guy, my trees, any conversation. I just simply held up my hand and shut the door. Went back to work on my sermon about <laughs> compassion. <laughs> nice work, Leatherberry. <laughs> what makes it so hard for us to care for people unconditionally, to be compassionate people? Well, there are at least three obstacles to caring that the disciples faced and that we all face too. The first one was this. They were too focused on themselves. Now I can just hear the conversation that was going on between the disciples when Jesus was out there loving on people, meeting people's needs. You know, sitting there under the tree, one of them says, you know, I, I kind of am getting a little hungry. Another one says, yeah, me too. And finally, they all decide and realize how hungry they are until finally they figure out they waited too long and so uh, they go out and they tell Jesus to send these people away. Now I think it's with sarcasm in his voice that Jesus says they don't need to go because what he's really saying is you need them to go because the disciples were too focused on themselves. Looking after our own interests is what we do best. The unholy trinity, me, myself, and I, always calling out, will this be good for me? Is this going to cost me this new job, this promotion, this next thing that I'm trying to get? Will this work out well for me? Is anyone paying attention to me? It's all about me. But the problem is that we get focused on our need, and we get so focused on what we need and when we need it and what it's going to do and what it's going to take to get what we need that we don't see the people who are in need right in front of us. It's kind of like walking around blindfolded. And we miss or don't see those people, or at least we don't see what they're going through. And we become so self-absorbed that they become invisible to us. Maybe even the people that we care about the most. The second obstacle the disciples faced was they oversized the problem and they undersized their resources. See, the disciples sized up the crowd. Matthew tells us that there were about 5,000 men on that day, which uh, means that uh, there were probably around 10 to 12,000 people because uh, if you count women and children, that's probably about where the figure was. So the disciples are looking at it, all these people, and they're counting mouths, and they're looking at five loaves and two fish, and they're looking at all those people. And uh, they realize that you don't need to be in food service, Jesus, to figure out five loaves and two fish are not going to feed all these people. There are way too many people, and there's way uh, too little food to feed them with. So you take care of it, Jesus. The closer we get to a problem, the more time we spend thinking about it. And the more time we spend thinking about it, the more we worry about it. And it turns out the more we, time we think and worry, the bigger the problem gets. And suddenly, sometimes, that problem becomes so big, it's the only thing that we can think about. That ever happened to you? Well, the other part of this is, too, that the bigger that problem becomes, the smaller our resources available to us seem. So we get overwhelmed. It's kind of like fighting a fire with a squirt gun. 
we get overwhelmed we, by life or by the situation we're facing. We feel defeated before we even get started. And if we could, we would run away and we would catch the next plane to anywhere but here. The third obstacle to caring that got in the way of the disciples was confusion. See, the disciples thought feeding all of those people was totally and completely their responsibility. Like, Jesus was leaving it all up to them, and he was expecting them to manufacture the food or find the food enough to feed all those people. And if any of those folks left hungry, well, then it was going to be their fault. Now, we get confused, too. Like, it's all up to us to manufacture results. That for someone to know Jesus, then you have to say the right things or read the right scriptures, or pray the right prayers. Or maybe it's about your children, that in order for them to succeed in life, then we have to get them in the right schools, or get them involved in the right activities, or help them find the right friends. And it begins to feel like their success or their failure only depends on us, our wisdom, our resources, our charisma. So we try harder, work harder, worry more, sleep less. And we end up tired, frustrated, burned out, resentful, or trapped. The disciples were focused on their own needs, overemphasizing the problem or, uh, while under, uh, underestimating the resources. They were confused about whose responsibility this whole thing was anyway. But look at what Jesus says to them. He says, give it to me. He asks them, what do you have in your hand, and would you give it to me? And in spite of the obstacles, and as crazy as it sounds, five loaves and two fish taking care of all these people, the disciples obeyed Jesus, and they did what he asked them to do in those moments. They gave Jesus the little they had, trusting that somehow he would make that enough. You know, whatever you are facing today, Whatever problem seems bigger to you than you can handle, bigger than real life, where uh, the situation feels to you like it's all up to you and no one else, Jesus asks you, what do you have and will you hand it to me? He doesn't ask you to perform the miracle. He doesn't ask you to solve the problem. He doesn't ask you to come up with everything that's going to be needed in the moment. He just asks you, what do you have? And will you give it to me? And you just wait and see what he will be able to do with it. I was talking to a woman from our church the other day who told me about a prayer ministry that she started with another neighbor in their neighborhood. And they started to pray for their neighbors. They, they meet together, they talk a little bit about their lives, share together, pray for each other, and then they play, pray for their neighborhood. They've told the neighbors that they're praying for them, and now they've got some neighbors that are calling, asking for prayer. Well, uh, then she went on to tell me the good things are happening in the neighborhood. A couple of the neighbors have had some significant uh, health issues, and neighbors now are starting to bring them meals. And then she said this to me. She said, people are attracted by compassion and by care. They really respond well to it. It turns out we don't have to look very far to find ways to be compassionate for people. Those ways actually come to us. It's paying attention to the people who are around us. It's listening when we ask, how are you doing? It's giving a water bottle to a homeless guy that you pass by every day and just saying, hi, this is for you. Hope you have a great day. 
Or maybe it's inviting a neighbor over that you don't know very well for dinner, for a cup of coffee. Or it's encouraging someone when they are feeling down. Or it's letting someone know about what Jesus has been up to in your life because you think that Jesus can help them too. And when in doubt, call the church. Talk to a pastor. It very well may be that we have a deeper impact resource team who could help you help the people that you care about. Jesus chooses to express his compassion and care through us. And when we allow him to do that, then we discover he can do a whole lot more than we can even imagine, even in overwhelming circumstances. The miracle is his to perform. Now, I've uh, shared this story in a few other settings. When I was in the seventh grade, our PE coach announced that we were going to have, uh, that our gym class was going to have a wrestling tournament. And uh, he was going to break us into these different weight divisions, and we'd have all these different matches, and then we'd crown a winner in each of these different divisions. Well, um, it just so happened that I was the heaviest guy in my class, so I naturally won my weight division because uh, I was the only one in my weight division. <laughs> now, I thought that was pretty cool, and I had visions of, you know, standing up in front of the school assembly, receiving my trophy, lots of applause, accolades, and never even having had to wrestle in a single match. Well, the coach broke all those uh, false ideals, uh, brought me back to reality when he announced that... Uh, I would be wrestling the 8th and ninth graders who'd also won in my weight class. And even worse, this was going to happen in front of the whole school. Uh, so I still remember who I wrestled, a guy named Kelly. Kelly was a ninth grader. Kelly and I weighed the same. It was just that our weight was mm, distributed differently in our bodies. Because <laughs> Kelly was the quarterback of the football team. <laughs> And we were the main event because that's the way it is in sports like wrestling. You know, you have the lightweights, middleweights, heavyweights. That was me. So Kelly and I stand up on the mat and across from each other, and Kelly just stares at me. And I know what he's thinking. He's thinking, Leatherberry, you are dead. <laughs> Which is funny because that's what I was thinking. <laughs> Leatherberry, you are dead. Well, coach blew the whistle, wrestle. Kelly charged at me and hit me so hard, I, I may have screamed. And in six seconds, Kelly had me on my back and counted out. I was pinned. I was finished. I may have set a school record for the guy <laughs> pinned in the shortest amount of time. And I, and I think that record still stands today, actually. But, you know, looking back on that day, I only have one regret. It's not that I weighed, you know, I was the only guy in my weight class, and, and it's not that I may have set a school record I didn't intend to set. It, what bothers me the most about that day is that I didn't even try. I didn't even try. I was so overwhelmed by the situation and filled with fear about this guy that I didn't even try. You know, it's one thing to try and fail. It's another not even to try. To waste our potential. To to not reach out to others with the same unconditional love and compassion that Jesus has for us. To not live the life of love that we were designed for because we didn't even try. That leads to boredom, and it leads to what get, uh, Greg Leboy calls a common cold of the soul, to sinful patterns and behaviors that never get confronted and changed, to abilities and gifts that you never cultivated or deployed, until weeks become months and months become years. 
And one day you're looking back on a life of deep, intimate, gut-wrenching, honest conversations that you never had, and great, bold prayers that you never prayed, exhilarating risks you never took, sacrificial gifts you never offered, lives you never touched, and you're sitting in a recliner with a shriveled soul and forgotten dreams, and you realize you realize there was a world of desperate need and a great God calling you to be part of something bigger than yourself. You see the person you could have been. You never followed your calling. You never got out of the boat. God's love shown to us in Jesus is irresistible, unconditional, freeing. Jesus came for sinners for those who know they need someone to rescue them from pride, greed, envy, jealousy, or whatever else. God's unconditional love means that he loves us anyway, jealous as we are, prideful as we are, bitter as we are, deceptive as we are. If you run away, he will come after you. If you go and hide, he will search until he finds you. Don't want to hear his name? He will stay, but not say a word. Find yourself in a dark alley, he will shine his light to help you find a way. Fall down, he will pick you up. Can't walk, he will carry you. Wounded, he will heal you. Discouraged, he will comfort you. Lost your moral compass, he has you covered. Because he loves you. And from the cross, he speaks these words. For love of you, I came for you. You who ran away and hid from me. You who didn't want to have anything to do with me. Who didn't know any better. For love of you, I was spit on, whipped, beaten, hung on a wooden cross to die. And the blood he bled, the final breaths he breathed and gasped for in those moments were the proof of just how serious Jesus is and how far he is willing to go to show you that he really means what he says when he says, I love you. So, where do you need Jesus to love on you today? Who needs to see compassion through you? What situation are you facing where Jesus is asking you, what do you have? Will you hand it to me? So, Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for this amazing compassion beyond all human understanding and comprehension, this amazing compassion that you have for us that sets us free. Lord, by your grace, would you help us then to live the lives you've designed us to be, to be people of love and compassion to those around us. It is the most attractive thing about the Christian faith. Help us to shine you, Jesus. In your name we pray.